Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Continue in our worship this morning through the study of God's Word. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn to Exodus chapter 27. Exodus 27, as we finish up the dimensions of the tabernacle, all the people said amen. We're going to get through it here this morning as we get through the dimensions of the tabernacle, but just wait. After that, we talk about the fashion of the priests. And so if you thought this was bad, just you wait. But we're going to start here in Exodus chapter 27. I want to take us through a few different portions of Scripture. So that'll be up on the screen for you this morning for you to see. So if you want to turn there or just bookmark it or take a picture of these Scriptures, I want you to see it even throughout the week. I pray that God brings these things to your mind. You go back and study and research and read. There's only so much that we can cover, but it's all coming from God's Word. This isn't from the mind of man or the heart of man, but from the Spirit of God through His Word is how we put together uh, these sermons. And so just want you to see it all up there together. Just to catch us all up, the people of God, the Israelites or Hebrews that go by a number of names have been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They were there for 430 years. God has delivered them and He's taking them to the promised land or the land of Canaan. But on the way there, He has to get the Egypt out of the Israelites. So in the process of that, he lands them at a place called Mount Sinai. It's this mountain. Um, Some might even think it's actually an active volcano, depending on some things they've researched. But this is uh, Mount Sinai, and God has brought his people there to worship him, and he's going to instruct them. He's given them the Ten Commandments, and now he's called the elders, 70 elders, and Moses and Aaron and his sons up onto the mountain. And he's called Moses even deeper into the presence of God. The presence of God has descended upon the mountain like uh, like a, a pillar of smoke and flames. It is almost catastrophic from the ground of what's happening on top of the mountain. Moses is there communing with God. And the first thing God gives Moses is the blueprint for what would be called the tabernacle, which is just a way of saying dwelling place or tent. Now, later in the Old Testament, this tabernacle would then become the temple in Jerusalem. So that, tra- that um, trail follows itself throughout Scripture. But this is where Moses is, and God's given him specific instructions. I mean, detailed instructions, and not just verbally. God, I don't know how he did it miraculously through, I don't know what he's done, uh, but he's given Moses a picture. He can actually see the, the tabernacle. Now, I don't know if he's walked it and touched it, but he can, he can see it all. I don't know if it's a hologram. I'm not sure what it is, but this is, this is what God has done for him on the mountain. We're getting to the end here. God's given him the dimensions of what's called the tabernacle proper, which would have been uh, the holy of holies and the holy place. So he's given him that. And now today we're going to get the dimensions of the courtyard or kind of the lobby of the tabernacle. But I want you to pay attention to a few things. I want you to pay attention to the material that's being used. I want you to pay attention to the colors that are being used. This is important for us. God is so annoyingly particular about how he puts things together. So he's given specific directions involving uh, material and color that I want you to pay attention to. I want to read through it, Exodus 27, verses 1 through 19. And then I want to share some stuff that I've learned um, in reading, and then I'm going to try to put this all in context and hopefully move us forward today. Uh, Exodus chapter 27, verse 1. You, this is God speaking to Moses, you shall make the altar of acacia wood. 
Now you remember God gave Moses an altar to make earlier at the base of the mountain. He said, make it out of uncut stone. Don't let a hammer touch it. You will profane it. Well, now God is going to upgrade that altar to now what he has in his tabernacle. You shall make this altar out of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. A cubit is about 18 inches or it's the length of a full-grown male from the, middle, the tip of his middle finger to his elbow is about a cubit. So he wants them by dimensions, five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with bronze. You can underline that, circle it. He wants bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. And you shall make all of its utensils bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net, you shall make four bronze rings at its corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. You shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with, you guessed it, bronze. And the poles shall be uh, put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. So shall you make it hollow with boards. As it has been shown to you on the mountain, so shall it be made. God's making everything portable. There's poles for you to carry it. Now he shifts from this piece of furniture to now the dimensions of the outer courts. Verse nine, you shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side of the court shall have hangings of fine twine linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. It's 20 pillars and their 20 bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets should be silver. And likewise, for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings 100 cubits long, its pillars 20 and their bases 20 of bronze, but the hooks and pillars of the fillet shall be silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings for 50 cubits with 10 pillars and 10 bases. The breadth of the court to the, on the front to the east shall be 50 cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three bases. On the other side, the hangings of the hangings shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue, purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth 50 and the height five cubits, about seven and a half feet, with hangings of fine twine linen and bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use, all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze." So here, God, again, detailed instructions, particular materials and colors and threads, and he just, he lays it all out for them. So I want to explain a few things about why he's choosing certain materials. Bronze in that culture and then throughout the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament denotes judgment. That's what bronze denotes. Bronze as a material is able to withstand heat uh, that other materials cannot withstand, which is why it's on the altar. It can withstand fire upon fire upon fire. He wants bronze everywhere. Notice inside, remember the Holy of Holies, he wants gold. But out here at the courts, now he wants bronze. He wants everything to be bronze. He talks about the colors of the linen and the thread that needs to be used. Purple, blue, and scarlet or red. Even in today's culture, do you know there's a psychology of colors? Do you know that? It's why most restaurants use the color red in their uh, branding. Because red... It increases your heart rate, which increases your metabolism, which makes you hungry. 
you're being played. Every restaurant you go to, like, man, I wasn't even hungry until I got in here. Oh, I wonder why. Red, it works for bulls too, from what I understand. But this is, this is what's, what red does. It increases the heart rate, increases metabolism, but it's, it also increases passion. That's the idea, and love. That's what red does. Blue is on the other end of the spectrum. Blue is a calming color. Blue denotes uh, steadiness and security, which is why many Fortune 500 companies have blue as their color because it, it tells you that they're steady. They're in it for the long haul. They're going to be okay. They can handle your investment, that kind of thing. So blue and red, both on that gate of the tabernacle. Passion, love, and steadiness, faithfulness. And then purple is the combination of the two colors, which denotes royalty or prestige. God specifically has these on the gate of the tabernacle. What we're learning uh, in society, sociology, and all those types of things, there's a number of things that are happening for us as uh, marketing and branding starts to take its like a new place in our culture. But a number of years ago, a guy by the name of Marshall McLuhan wrote a book called The Medium is the Message. It's, it's fascinating. It's the onset of really TV and particularly uh, network news on TV. And he saw what would happen if news became entertainment. Amen, anyone? We start losing truth and start appealing to audiences. And so he wrote, writes a book called The Medium is the Message. In other words, how you communicate is often more important than what you are communicating. So I want to share a couple of quotes, but I want you to keep in your mind what we just read in Exodus 19, that God is communicating, not just in the content of what's being said, but in how it's being said and uh, artistically rendered. Marshall McLuhan says this, environments are not passive wrappings, but are rather active processes which are invisible. What he's saying is that environments shape us. They're not passive. They're not, well, it's just a paint color. No, no, no. You ask Chip and Joanna, it's not just a paint color, right? It's, it's not. It, it creates something within you. And even in today's culture, the, the big paint color that's going in every house on top of your shiplap is white. Is it not white? It's white or it's a cream, and you want to know why? Because that creates a peace or a calming, because in a culture like ours, that's what we want at home. Now, in the 80s, we, it was a different color everywhere. You walk back in our back, hall, our back hallway in the early 2000s, gosh, it was some colors. There's a tangerine room down there, and that, that was it then. We felt like, man, I think preschoolers would really do well in a bright tangerine room, and so that's what they got. But colors, what he's saying is the environment shapes us. It's not passive, it's active. How things are constructed, the colors that are used, the things you come in contact with, it shapes us. It's not passive. He goes on to say, everybody experiences far more than he understands. Yet it is experience rather than understanding that influences behavior. We experience, we take in so much more than we understand. Have you ever had an experience where your body, emotionally, you were feeling something and you didn't know why you were feeling that thing? Has that happened to you before? We're taking something in, most likely from our environments, from a paint color, from a smell, um, from the attention in the room. And we actually, that then gives us a direction as far as how to behave. It influences our behavior. We experience more than we understand. Finally, McLuhan says, societies have always been shaped more by the nature of the medium by which men communicate than by the content of the communication. 
societies have always been shaped more by the medium than the message. We're shaped more by what we see and experience than the actual content that's coming forth. And this is true. And you know it. Because if a very attractive person were to sit on, be on a, on a camera on the news or a sports station and were to share some information, many people would consider the information. If a less attractive person were to communicate the same information, you would not pay as close of attention to that person. This is true for us. We understand. We're shaped more by the nature of the medium than what's being communicated. So with that in mind, let's look at the picture of the tabernacle again. And I want you to understand that God is communicating something in what he has designed. Yes, God is practical. Yes, God wants porpoise skin on the top of the tabernacle, all of that. But also, he's an artist. He's creative. And he's creative in a way that communicates something. So this is our tabernacle. For me, it was a little bit mind-blowing, and maybe it shouldn't have been at this point in my life. The tabernacle is 75 feet by 150 feet long, which is only a quarter of a football field. Four of these could fit on a football field. Many of you could fit 100 of these on your property. Like, it would fit in your property. Your neighborhood could be made of multiple of these. I used to think they were gigantic. They're, They're not. This is how big they are, 75 feet by 150 feet. It would fit, it would almost fit in this gym right now. If we just went out to the lobby, it would fit, the tabernacle would fit in here. This is how big it was or small it was. 2.1 million people, this is their central place of worship. You see on the right, that's the veil. That's the curtain. That's the outer gate, the scarlet and blue and purple. That's what that is. And it faces the east. In the culture that they lived in, to run to the east was to run away from God. To run to, to the west was to run towards God. So to enter into the tabernacle meant that you had your back to the world and you were facing God. The first thing you would encounter is the bronze altar, which we just read about. Then you would encounter the bronze basin, which we'll learn about with the priests in the, uh, I think it's next week. Then you've got curtains to take you into the holy place and into the holy of holies. But I want you to look particularly at the courtyard. When you walk into the gate, in through the gate, the blue and the red and the purple and the cherubim embroidered in, you walk into it, you see the flame of the altar. The first thing you see is this massive bronze altar in front of you. That's what you walk in on. Now, if we're going to take that and overlay it into our modern churches today, the courtyard would be similar to the lobby of the church. This is, this is where everyone comes in first. Now, outside would be the world. And then on the interior now is probably people who are there to be there. These are Jews, uh, practicing Jews. This is who's inside the courtyard. But the first thing they see in the courtyard is the bronze altar. And if the medium is the message, the question then has to be, then why would God give us that? Why that? Why the bronze altar first? But when you walk in and you see bronze altar, bronze um, uh, laver, then you see the bronze on all the posts, what that should communicate to you is this is a place of judgment. Now, listen, I don't know how our first impression team would handle that. Hey, welcome to judgment. We're glad you're here. Um, you're going to need to tuck your shirt in because it's not going to work here. I'm like, right, like, I don't know how that works, but this is what you would walk in on and you would see it. Now, and it's not just that. Like, your senses would be hyperactive in what's happening. I want to read to you and just close your eyes. Just picture what I'm reading to you. I want you to think through the sounds. I want you to think through what you see. I want you to think through what you smell when I read this. From Exodus, we read the book of Leviticus. And in Leviticus, we get the priest's manual, the manual of how to perform sacrifices on this altar, on this bronze altar, the first thing you walk in on. 
I'm going to read these to you again. Just picture it. I want you to think about it. Smell the smells, feel the feels, all of it. This is from Leviticus chapter 1. God said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If this offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish, a perfect specimen. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and that shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. I'm not sure what kind of lobbies you've walked into, what churches you've walked into, but I guarantee you haven't seen that happen. Because if you had, you're, you're out, like you're completely out. I'm not doing any of this stuff ever again. You shall kill the bull before the Lord. Where? At the front gate, at the front doors of a tabernacle in the lobby. You shall kill the bull before the Lord. Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that's at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. Not in the kitchen, not in the back hallway, in the lobby. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar but it's entrails. Anybody know what entrails are? Yeah, enjoy lunch today. And his legs he shall wash with water and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. I want you to picture the sounds. I want you to picture the smells. I want you to picture the sights of what you're seeing in this tabernacle courtyard. Leviticus 3 tells us about a peace offering. There's five main offerings. This would have been the third. It should also be without blemish. It says, uh, He shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons and priests shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering, of, covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Aaron's sons shall place it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. In the tabernacle, the medium is the message. You walk into the courtyard, bringing an unblemished animal for your sacrifice to gain entrance into the presence of God. And you've spent money on this animal or you, you've gotten it from Egypt, most likely. And so you've raised this animal. You have plans for the animal and you bring it into sacrifice. And there's no coffee, the air conditioning. It's hot. There's no air. It's hot. It's steamy. There's nothing comfortable. You hear the guttural sounds of animals as they breathe out their last breath. You hear the breaking of bones and the flesh being torn from its body. You hear the slopping of the entrails and the blood being splashed against the altar. You smell flesh being burnt on an altar. You see puddles of blood and livers and kidneys. In fact, to get in, you're stepping over these things and you're bringing your kids with you. And there's bronze everywhere. And what's being communicated to you is to get to the presence of God is costly. It's going to cost something. Don't just gallivant in. You don't just come in singing, um, humming Disney songs. I mean, we're, we're going somewhere. 
and it's communicating the holiness of God, but also a God who desires to be with his people, that he's given you a way to get in. Now, I want you to compare that lobby to this lobby. And what does this communicate about the holiness of God? You can send me emails, it's fine. It's not a church in our community. In many ways, what we've done in our culture is that we've run towards the comfort and convenience, and what we've lost is the holiness and sacredness of God. And when you step into a lobby and your first concern is, it's too hot or too cold in here, I want you to go to the tabernacle and ask yourself if you're asking that same question. And when you step into the sanctuary of God, have you been prepared for the presence of God through the acts that got you to the door? I believe in the 90s and 2000s, I think we hurt a lot of people. As a church, big C church, as Christians, in the way that we tried to make Jesus cool to people. I think what we've done is we've undersold the holiness and splendor of a holy God and the fact that that holy God wants to be with you and with me and that he gave us a way to get to him. And it doesn't feel like going down a curved slide into a ball pit. Sometimes it feels like your entrails are being put on an altar. Sometimes it feels that way. Neil Postman wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death where he takes a look at George Orwell's 1984 and then Huxley's Brave New World. And he takes a look at it and he believes that Huxley's Brave New World, the idea is that we are killed by the things that we desire, not the things that we hate. But Postman says this in his book. He says, spiritual devastation is more likely to come from an enemy with a smiling face. And I just wonder if you can say, yep. Because what's been communicated about God is that he's your homeboy. He's not your homeboy. He's altogether separate and set apart. And this God, this holy, set apart God, desires broken people like you and me to be in his presence. That should overwhelm us with gratitude and joy. And yet, because he's our buddy... We've lost it. So here's the key for the morning. Repentance is the way into God's presence. That's it. That's it. Repentance is the way into God's presence. The reason why the courtyards were covered in bronze is because if you're going to get to God's presence, you're going to have to walk through some judgment. You're going to have to walk through the entrails of the animals, the blood splattered against the altar, and the smell of the burnt flesh from it. To get into God's presence, it's costly. Costs us something. This is the way into God's presence. So then the question is, why? Then why would you ever, right? Like, if that's what the courtyard is, man, I'm going somewhere else. I'm going to build me a new one. I'm going to find somewhere else to go. I don't like what's being communicated there. I don't like the way it smells. I'm moving away. I'm going to find a different tabernacle to go to unless you actually desired to be in the presence of God. If it was about your comfort, if it was about uh, the seats and the building and the pain, if it was about that, if it was about convenience, yeah, you'd leave. 
But if you really wanted to be in the presence of God and this was the place to get into the presence of God, I think you'd do whatever it took to get in the presence of God. If you really wanted him, that's what we would do. So if this is the courts of the tabernacle, if this is it, it makes Psalm 84 really weird. Let me read Psalm 84 to you. How lovely is your dwelling place, your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. That just sounds deranged, doesn't it? My soul longs for the smell of burning flesh. That's what, that's what my soul longs for. My soul longs for the sound of blood splattered and the sound of my feet as they squish entrails. That's what my soul longs for. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. Now in the Psalms, this word selah, you'll see it over, um, over and over again. It's a musical term and what it means for the musician is it's an intentional pause. But for the songwriter, it's an intentional pause for reflection. And what Selah should tell you is, go back and read that again. That's what it should tell you. Like, go consider what you just read. Because sometimes we just sing things because they're on the screen, like Anchorman, and we don't exactly know what we're doing. And so what Selah means is, no, 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 stop. Read it again. What he wants you to read again is that the psalmist is saying, I long to be in the courts of the tabernacle. I long to be where judgment is. I long to be where sacrifice is required of me. I long to be with the smells and the sounds and the sights. I long that, that's a Selah. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. And this Psalm continues down into verse 10. He says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I could think of a thousand places better. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Ah, there we have it. He'd rather be in the burnt flesh aroma of the courts than in the tents of wickedness. Now we begin to understand it. This psalmist hates his sin so much, he'd rather go through that to get to the presence of God than to wallow in his wickedness. I'd rather be here for the Lord is a sun and a shield. He uses the term sun because the sun gives power and light and, and, and it gives a lot to us, but you don't want to get too close because it's dangerous. So he also provides a shield to get to the sun. He's both. He's both altogether separate and holy and he is the way. He has given you a way in. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Why does he want to be? In the courts, because in the courts is how I get to the presence of God. And in the presence of God, I get everything good he has to offer. The writer of Psalm 84 knows that repentance is the way into God's presence. It's the way in. There's no other way in. In the book of Acts, um, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and begins preaching. After Jesus has ascended, the Holy Spirit has, has descended in Acts chapter 2, and Peter begins preaching. And his message is, repent. That's his message. And he says, repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Repenting literally means to turn back, to change the path that you're on, to go a different direction. 
So he tells them to repent. And then look what he says in verse 20, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You want to know why we repent? Because we believe that in repentance, we get to refreshing. That's why we repent. And for those of us in the room today who have walked in honest, heart-wrenching repentance, we would say yes and amen. That fresh wind we were singing about, that new wine we wanted through through the crushing and the pressing, yes and amen. Through honest, heartfelt conviction laid in repentance, we find the presence of God. And in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. There is refreshment to be found. And so for those of us who have honestly repented and who have walking in refreshing, we would say like the psalmist, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Give me the sights and sounds and smells. Give me the conviction of the Spirit. I want it. I want more of it because when I get that, I get you. And when I get you, I get refreshing. And that's what I long for. I think the problem for us in our culture is that we have taken the idea of repentance and the idea of sacrifice and we've tamed it down to make it accessible for people to make it feel a little less offensive, to make it feel like it's not so boring and dull. And so we do ridiculous things as as churches and churches did ridiculous things in the 90s and 2000s, all in this vein. And I think what's happened is we've undermined what repentance actually looks like, but we're not new to it. This happened in the Old Testament. Malachi is a prophet and Malachi's job is to tell the people what God thinks, even if they don't like it. And so at this point, the people of God have, have profaned his altar They've been looking for shortcuts into the presence of God. They've been looking for ways to like confess, but not really confess and repent, but not really repent. They've been looking for ways to have their cake and eat it too. And so Malachi, God through Malachi goes off on the people. Malachi chapter one, verse six. God says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priests who despise my name, but then you say, how have we despised your name? Because isn't that true? We're like, how? We don't do that. And God's like, well, you offered polluted food upon my altar. Well, then you ask, well, how have we polluted you? Well, by saying the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? When God asks for an unblemished, spotless sacrifice and they offer blind animals and you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? And then I love this. He says, Present that to your governor. Give that to your official. You think he likes it? Then why would I like it? Verse nine, now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there are one of you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle a fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. You say, yeah, but it's so hard. It just feels so sad and overwhelming. Can't we just be happy all the time? I get so weary to have to repent. I don't want to be reminded of my sin. I just feel so weary to do this. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. 
You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and you bring this as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Then he really lets us know how he feels in verse 14. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Your soul longs for the presence of God. And I know we wouldn't say that, but you know it because you've tried everything else. You've literally tried everything else. And nothing has satisfied your soul. But what's more dangerous is those of us who fake satisfaction so that we appear to be holy before people. And you fake offerings and you fake sacrifices and you're not bringing your whole heart. You're going to stand and sing. You're going to raise your hand. You're going to clap your hands. You're going to come and kneel. And yet what God is asking for, you won't give to him. It's a blemished lamb. It's a blind animal. You'll come in here and you'll serve and you'll be here Sunday morning. You'll be in our prayer service. You'll be there Wednesday night. You'll be a deacon or an elder or a staff member. And yet the thing that God is breaking your heart over, you will not repent of. And then you feel far from God and you get mad at God for being far from you. He is not far from you. He desires to be with his people and the way to his presence is repentance. The problem is you don't like the path. You want fullness of joy. You want satisfaction. Do you want refreshing? It only comes through repentance. Only comes through repentance. When David is caught in his sin with Bathsheba and then has her um, husband killed in war and confronted by Nathan, he's face to face with his sin. He has a moment of grief and then he shows godly grief in Psalm chapter 51. And he says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. How do you get to the refreshing presence of God? A broken and a contrite heart. But the problem for us is that we walk westward toward God with our faces towards the world. We need to turn our eyes upon Jesus. It's beautiful for us as New Testament believers that the bronze altar has been taken over by the wooden cross of Jesus. And the sacrifice demanded of the people to be in the presence of God has been satisfied through Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb. But we aren't required to bring the blood of bulls and goats anymore. We're just required to fix our eyes on Jesus. In Leviticus, God tells his people, I don't want you to eat the blood of an animal. I don't want to do anything with the blood because in the blood is the life of that animal. And then he says, which I have given to you. The very thing God has asked of us to be in his presence, he gave us that thing to get into. And he's done it through the blood of Jesus Christ. You feel far from God this morning? I think it's a call to repentance. You feel like you need refreshing, like you're weary. I think it's a call to repentance. 
Are you tired of trying to keep everything, all the pieces juggled, keep all the dishes and plates spinning? Are you tired of it? It's a call to repentance. It's a call to walk forward into his presence today. Hebrews chapter 13, the author of Hebrews says, the one thing that God requires of us now is a sacrifice of praise. You want to know why you can long for a day in his courts and it's better than a thousand elsewhere? Because you can praise him for what he's provided, which is through Jesus, a way into his presence. I pray that we are a people who would take a day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere. That if it means conviction and repentance, I'm all in. If it means uncovering things in me that I thought I had buried years ago, I'm all in. It takes an honest humility saying, I can't figure it out. I can't get there myself, but I need you. What do you need? I need a broken and a contrite heart and a belief that Jesus finished it all. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and we're gonna just pray and then we're gonna sing. I'm just gonna ask you this morning what you're longing for, what your flesh and heart are crying out for today. Are they crying out for comfort? Or are they crying out for Christ? And we said it earlier, when Jesus looks upon us, he sees us as his son. He is delighted in us. So what's holding you back? Maybe there are things in your heart you need to wrestle with today. And that true conviction, true repentance has to make its way into your bones today. These steps as a makeshift altar are available to you to come offer your sacrifice, to come lay down your life. We have elders and staff who will move forward to come pray with you and pray for you. You might need to bring a spouse with you and repent to them, confess to them. Maybe it's a son or a daughter or a friend. But in the presence of God, there's fullness of joy. There's times of refreshing. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna sing. Feel free to worship how you need to. God, thank you for your judgment. Thank you for your justice. Thank you that you are a God who desires perfection because that's who you are. And yet you provided a way for imperfect people like me to become in your presence. That's nothing that I have done through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And that when I see him, when I walk through the gates and I see the new brazen altar of the cross, God, I've reminded, yes, of my sin, but also of your grace and your forgiveness. And so I enter your courts with praise today. Would you take our offering as a sweet-smelling fragrance today as we worship you, God, and through the Holy Spirit, work, God, work to bring about refreshment through repentance today. We need your presence more than anything. In Jesus' name. Amen.